0: Philippians chapter 4. I plead with Euodia and plead with Senechde to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal Yelk fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. Hope you all had a very nice Thanksgiving. We had a great Thanksgiving lunch here at church. We had probably about maybe 80 people in attendance. And it was just lots of food and just a good time to um, have fellowship with people and meet some new people. So it was great. And those of you who joined us, I'm sure you enjoyed yourself as well. So this morning, um, as you can tell from our scripture reading, we're going to be getting back into the book of Philippians. If this is your first time here or you haven't been with us for a while... Uh, This fall, we've been going through this book of Philippians. Uh, We took a break last week as Dr. Arthur's gave us uh, more of a Thanksgiving message, Uh, but now we're going to be getting back into it today. Uh, We have three more Sundays to go, uh, including this one, and then after that, uh, we'll finish the book. Um, Because of scheduling and um, the missions conference with Chapman a couple weeks ago, uh, I also haven't gotten a chance to address you post-election, and so I'd also like to incorporate that this morning as well. Uh, "God kind of worked things out," such that you'll find that this passage actually uh, fits very well into a talk uh, about this subject. Um, I mean all of you know that over the past few months here in the U.S, uh, we had a very heated battle going on, and uh, I know uh, standing up here, I'm not supposed to take sides, uh, but I will admit that I did have a favorite. I wanted to win. Uh, I was rooting for, this works, the Chicago Cubs. (laughs) Yes, Cubs fans, thank you. Sorry if any of you are from Cleveland. Um, But, you know, after you're going through 107 years of futility, I mean, you had to, you had to root for them. Um, I happened to be in Chicago uh, during game seven, and the night they won, and I was at a Fast food restaurant, the fast food restaurant was supposed to close at 10, uh, but they had the game on and, and they kept the restaurant open so people could watch the game. Um, if, you, if you don't know, I mean, it was a very close game. I, I thought pretty much after the seventh inning, uh, they were, the Cubs were up by three runs and they had the game in the bag. Uh, but then uh, when Cleveland scored three runs in the eighth, I thought that was it. I mean, the curse is still on, the Cubs were gonna lose. Uh, but as we know, you know, they pulled it out. So I'm very happy. Um, it was kind of surreal in the city because people were kind of in shock that they actually won. Uh, I got home uh, that night. My brother, who normally goes to bed very early, was still up. He's like, uh, did you watch the game? Did you see what happened? And he, he looked like, you know, like he was in a state of shock. But he was so happy, he um, went out at 9 a.m. the next morning to Dix to buy a $40 Cubs championship hat, and so for Chinese, 40 bucks is a lot of money, so he was very happy. Um, but anyway, on a more serious note, um, I know this election has caused much stress and resentment, and it comes from both sides. Uh, I shared with some of you that having served in the South, it was interesting to see some of the, uh, some of the comments between, uh, that my friends had posted uh, from the south and the comments and, and, and the things people were saying here, uh, from my friends down in Texas, uh, looking at the many Facebook posts and comments that were made, it was easy to tell that their mindset was, "How could anyone vote for Hillary?" And for those here in the Northeast, the mindset was more, "How could anyone vote for Trump?" And though you know you may find it hard to believe, I mean these are Christians on both sides, very godly men and women. Um, the Gaslight Coalition had an interesting article stating where the author stated the premise um, that those believers who supported Trump did so more out of a concern for justice. He writes, they cared, more, they cared most about who would be appointed to the Supreme Court and the outcome of the decisions they felt of great importance, such as abortion, marriage, religious liberty, and so on. So Trump was not their first or even second choice. These people knew what they were getting with Hillary, so they were willing to take their chance on Trump, and saw him as the lesser of two evils. But those on the other side, the article goes on, they voted more out of a concern for witness. Though they may have shared concerns about the Supreme Court and justice issues, they thought the damage done to our gospel witness in choosing Trump outweighs the potential damage done by a liberal court. They saw Trump's comments as racist, sexist, anti-life, and so on, all the while while claiming to be a Christian, and that turning a blind eye to his character for the sake of political expediency betrayed our calling as Christians. Indeed, some who fell on this side believe the character of both candidates made them unfit for the highest office, they could not vote for either. No matter which side you fall on or how you voted, I mean, the election is passed, the outcome has been decided. Some of you may be quite happy with the outcome. Some of you may feel quite deflated. Now, whatever uh, your feelings from our passage this morning, I believe the Apostle Paul would tell us to see the outcome as an opportunity for the church and to challenge us to live out what we believe, to live out our theology. These six verses can be broken down into two sections. In the first, Paul exhorts the Philippian Christians to live out their theology by being un- unified in order to deal with an internal issue. In the second portion, he instructs the believers to live out their theology through properly responding to persecution. So, at the first section, it begins with verse 2. I played with Eodia and I played with Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Here, Paul instructs his readers to live out their theology through reconciliation. As mentioned in previous sermons, one issue that was going on in the Philippian church that troubled Paul so much was division within the church. So important was this issue. That he took the bold step of calling two people out by name, Yodia and You Remember d- during this time that um, when letters like these arrived at the church, what would happen was the letter would be brought in front of the entire church and someone would open up the letter and read it to the entire church, like, you know, me standing here giving a message to you. So it would be quite forward to address someone in a public letter and quite attention getting, right? I mean, suppose I'm giving a sermon here and and in the middle you guys are getting a little tired and kind of dozing off, but I say something like, oh, and Jen and Stan, you guys have to get along. And you guys would be like, wow, what are you talking about? And that's exactly what's happening here in this letter. I mean, these women were leaders in the church. They may very well have been some of the founding members of the church, we don't know exactly how, but Paul says they worked light alongside him in ministry. So they were prominent figures. There was some issue that was coming between them, which we don't know exactly what it was. You can safely say it wasn't a doctrinal issue because if it was a doctrinal issue, Paul could have just corrected their doctrine and, and told them what the you know right response was. But he didn't. So it wasn't a doctrinal issue. It was Maybe something personal? Who knows? Maybe it was something over politics. Regardless of the issue, Paul pleads with this woman to resolve it. So important that they reach a solution that he even asked someone else to get involved. In verse 3, that this loyal yoke fellow, he, we don't know who this person is, but Paul says, you need to help them resolve this issue. Two things are important to to note when we look at this issue of reconciliation. First, Paul's not just asking these women to get along on human grounds. He is asking them to, once again, agree in the Lord. In this phrase, in the Lord, we're going to see a couple more times in our passage. It's not just enough to approach conflict resolution from a worldly perspective, perspective, or propose to you know, agree to disagree, in order to maintain peace. No, they have to recognize the unity that they have in the Lord. The phrase Paul uses to tell them to agree with each other is nearly the same phrase that we saw Paul do here in chapter 2 when in verse 2 he instructs the Philippians to be of like-minded, to be like-minded, to be of the same mind because they are united with Christ. So they need to first Reconcile because of their unity, to be like minded because of their relationship with Christ. Second, Paul sees it as so important to maintain the unity and sanctity of the church because there's something greater at stake here, and that's the gospel. These women have contended at Paul's side for the gospel, and they've told others to live or how to live as God's people. These women, as well as the others mentioned, have their names written in the book of life. So their community on earth should reflect what will eventually be their community in heaven. Their responsibility to live out the gospel they teach and model it strongly compels them to resolve their differences in the Lord. You know, and so it is today. Maybe we don't feel very united with other believers who don't share the same political leanings as us. Within our church, I've heard of people who, after the election, thank God for answering their prayers for the outcome, and those who didn't think God answered their prayers at all. And no matter which side you fall on, it's not time to cause strife, to cause division. It's not time to badmouth those who disagree with you. And it's not enough, as Paul would say, to just try to maintain peace from a human standpoint by pretending we all get along when we actually don't. Paul would tell us we must be unified in the Lord because we are united at Christ because the gospel is at stake. The second way Paul would have us live out our theology is through our rejoicing. This is what Paul tells us in verse 4. And it's so important that he repeats it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you didn't hear me, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. And if you've been with us for most of this series, you know that this theme of rejoicing is, is a big, major theme of this whole book. The joy Paul talks about is not one based on circumstances or emotions, which can easily fluctuate, but a steadfast, steadfast state based on our relationship With Christ. And that's why we see this phrase again, rejoice in the Lord. This phrase, rejoice in the Lord, it's an imperative in the original language, meaning we are commanded to rejoice in all circumstances and at all times. And sure, you know, maybe right now you don't really feel like rejoicing. Your candidate didn't win. People disappoint you. The world's messed up. But once again, it's not based on our circumstances or other people. It's based on the Lord. Why can we rejoice? Alder Terry mentioned several things in his prayer this morning. We we can rejoice because God is sovereign. He's in charge of everything, nothing happens outside of his control. He wasn't caught off guard with the election results. Not only is he in control, but we need to understand the that for some reasons we may not even be able to conceive of. He's working things out for our good. We saw this earlier in Philippians 2.13, that God works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. And all those purposes are good. You can also rejoice because Jesus died for us and we have been, been redeemed through the blood of Christ. He promises us an inheritance and one day Jesus will return. To rule and make all things right. No matter what's going on in this world, these things will never change. And remember, too, that when Paul writes these words, he's not doing so in a vacuum, but doing so out of personal experience. Remember, during this time, he was under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard 24 7. He was awaiting a trial that could lead to his execution. You remember also, you know, in his writings in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how he suffered shipwrecks and floggings and imprisonment. Remember, too, that the Philippians were also facing persecution at this time from false teachers and fellow Philippian citizens who were mocking their belief in Jesus Christ. You know, so Paul doesn't write this under a bubble. He intensely knows what persecution is. But he rejoices because of his relationship with Jesus, because as we saw in previous messages, the gospel was being spread, and for him, even to die was the gain. So let us deeply understand who God is and the relationship we have in him, and let us rejoice. Following the second point, as a result of our confidence in Christ and our ability to rejoice, which should result as an expression reasonableness, reasonableness. And the NIV, verse 5, says, let your gentleness be evident to all, but in some versions, like the ESV, they translate it, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In this verse, Paul tells his listeners the first way to respond when facing persecution is to have this attitude. The term used in the original language refers to an attitude of kindness and graciousness when the normal expected response would be retaliation. So very much, you know, very much so Paul is writing in the context of facing persecution. You may hurt me, you may offend me, you may mistreat me, you may misjudge me, but I will not treat you the same way. I will act graciously towards you and in humility towards you. We are to act this way also because we are instructed to imitate Christ. And this is how our Savior is. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And though this you know, acting in this manner would not be uh, in our normal response we, when we want to retaliate, Paul tells us what enables us to do so is what he writes in the next sentence, because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. And there's different thoughts as to what is meant by this phrase. Some people think that he means it in a chronological sense, meaning that Christ could be returning soon. But I think he means it more in a spatial sense, that God is physically present. God is with us. God is nearby. And that gives us a sense of calmness and graciousness. As an example of a before and after of this, we find an interesting story in 1 Samuel, the, the passage I, I put in your outline. Here David is fleeing from Saul after learning of Saul's jealousy of David and his desire to kill David. And during the time he was fleeing, David ends up in a town called Gath. And he tries to find safety there with this king named um, Achish. And the king's servant said some things to Achish that made Achish feel threatened by David and may make Achish want to kill David. So David's very, very afraid. He fears for his life. And instead of trusting in the Lord, it says in 1 Samuel 21 that he begins acting like a madman. He starts scribbling on walls, he starts drooling. You know, he wanted the king to think he was insane. And his plan worked. It says in 1 Samuel that the king was like, Who is this madman? Do I need more madmen in my house? He's like, I have you people. I don't need more madmen in my house. Get him out of here. So the plan worked and David fled a uh, gas and he winds up in this cave. And while he was in the cave, I think he Someone came to his senses he realized that in a state of panic, he wrongly acted in front of Akish and did not trust in the Lord for his deliverance. So in his reflection in the cave, he penned Psalm 57, which starts off like this. It says, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. So we see here, David is reminded of the nearness of the Lord. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And instead of panic, a spirit of gentleness is restored. Verses 7 to 9 of Psalm 57 say, My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the people, all the while knowing that Saul is still on the hunt for David, trying to kill him. But David realizes that instead of panicking, he should have lived out his theology and remained calm and steadfast and gay. And Paul instructs us here in Philippians to do similarly. Though we may be tempted to lash out at people who have different views than us. So we may be tempted to you know retaliate to those who treat us improperly. Paul says, No. Have a gentle spirit, act in graciousness and humility. And then the final way Paul would tell us to live out our theology is through our relaxed nature. Relaxed nature. Verse six, do not be anxious about anything. Once again, an imperative. Don't be anxious about anything. And once again, you know, he's not writing in a vacuum. I mean, during this time, there was much a believer could worry about if one wished, if one wanted to. Um, during this time, you know, the person in charge, of, or the person who controlled much of the world as they saw it was, you know, the Nero, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And if you don't know about Nero, you know, he was one of the worst characters, probably ever, who lived on earth. I mean, he, he murdered his way to the throne. His life was character, characterized by debauchery, violence. He caused his own mother to be killed. He was very extravagant. He hated Christians, and in 64 A.D. blamed them for a fire he. Very well, may have set. And because of this fire which burned most of Rome and the people unhappy with this fire, he blamed the Christians, and a great persecution broke out against the Christians. They were falsely accused in a prison. Historical records show some were set on fire to be used as lights at night, others were torn apart by dogs. Others were crucified. And although this book of Philippians was, was written a few years earlier than A.D. 64, when the actual persecution occurred, there were still pockets of persecution going on then. And, and the later events just basically proved what kind of character Nero was. And all this is to say that if Paul wanted to, he could have easily told the believers, you should be anxious. You shouldn't rejoice. You should not be... Have an attitude of humility. But he did not do so. And in verse 6 to 7, he tells them they don't need to be anxious because they can pray. And as a result of their prayer, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's, you know, the similar phrase, in the Lord, in Christ Jesus. And the order is important. First you pray, and then you have the peace. So many people want the peace, but they don't want to pray. But Paul's telling you, you can't have the latter without the former. You pray, then you have peace. And once again, you know, note the repeated emphasis here. We can be secure because of our relationship with Jesus. That's why Paul tells us to agree in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. We have peace of God in Christ Jesus. You know, we may not know what's going to happen in the future, but God does. And once again, he's working things out according to his good purposes. As, as followers of Jesus Christ, you know, we should not see this as a time to cower and retreat, but one of opportunity to take advantage of. From Old Testament times, you know, we learned that people were never to place their hope in a human ruler because God was to be our ruler. No matter who won the election, anyone in office will eventually fail you because we're all sinful human beings. The language and actions of this election process was was so divisive. I don't remember any election that was like this one. And as a result, you know, people post election are fearful of being discriminated against or already have been immigrants, the poor those of different races, those who claim a different orientation. Not that we necessarily agree with their beliefs or practices. But we are called to be Christ to those people and share his love, the gospel with them. In, in the Sunday school this morning that Chris taught, you know, he talked about how, you know, the Islam here in the US are feeling fearing, you know, retaliation and retribution. I don't know if you saw in the news but Uh, Just yesterday, there was a news story about a mosque in California where someone sent sent them a letter saying they were going to begin the cleansing process and start with the Muslims. I mean, that's not how Christians are supposed to respond. Once again, we're called to be Christ. We're called to carry out the Great Commission. This is not outlawed in our country. And we have this mandate. Let me close with a story. So there was this guy who lived uh, in the 200s A.D. His name was Cyprian. He was appointed the Bishop of Carthage, which uh, Carthage was, is now located in what is now modern-day Tunisia. Between 250 to 270 A.D., a devastating plague hit the Roman Empire. It was so severe that it, at its height, about 5,000 people died each day just in Rome. And this plague, interestingly enough, coincided with a persecution of Christians under Emperor Decius. And not surprisingly, because of the persecution, Decius and other enemies of the church blamed Christians for this plague. People were fleeing. Afflicted cities in reactive numbers, including the doctors of the town, because they were, they all feared for their lives. This guy, this other guy, Dionysus, was a witness to all that was going on. And he wrote this, he wrote, At the first onset of the disease, people pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. Bishop Cyprian, however, had a different response. He urged the Christians to stay and minister to the people, which they did. The adds, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pain. You know what happened? As a result, Gentiles were drawn to Christianity record numbers. Historian Rodney Stark found that in 165 A.D., the Christian population was made up of about 70% Judeo-Christian and 30% Gentiles. But by 261 A.D., the makeup changed from 53% Judeo-Christians to 47% Gentiles, only almost half-half. And what caused the large shift? the radical love shown by the followers of Jesus Christ. Indeed, even a hundred years after this, the new emperor, Emperor Julian, took note of what happened when he wrote this letter. He said, I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, these were pagan priests he was talking about, the impious Galileans, actually, these were. this was the term for the Christians, the impious Galileans, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. And Candida Moss, a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Notre Dame, notes that an epidemic that seemed like the end of the world actually promoted the spread of Christianity. By their actions in the face of possible death, Christians showed their neighbors... That Christianity is worth dying for, and not in a violent sense, but in one of sacrificial love. And because of the reactions, many of the people were drawn to Christ. So I see a similar opportunity here, not one of loss, but an opportunity for us as a church to be bold and to step up, to live out our theology and to walk the talk. Because if we can be people who bring about reconciliation, if we can rejoice in the Lord and act reasonably towards others, let us show that by our relaxed nature we trust and pray to Christ and have peace as this result. And in response, we turn and love others with this radical love that Christ has shown to us. God can use us to draw record numbers to Him. So let's not see this once again as just a loss or defeat, but an opportunity for this church to step up, for followers of Jesus Christ to step up, and spread the gospel. And may He use us to do the same with those impious, as He did with the impious Galileans 1,800 years ago. So live out your theology. Love others with the radical love that Christ has given us. And may God use our efforts to advance his kingdom. Let's pray. But I know, as Terry prayed earlier, that you know, people are still uneasy about the election and, and the results.